Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. Now, anyone who's listened regularly to the show will know one of my most popular and returning guests is Orlando Wood, author of Masterpieces Lemon and Lookout. Now, you might not know that a lot of Orlando's work is actually based on a guy called Dr. Ian McGilchrist's work. He is a psychiatrist, he's a philosopher and an author, and his hugely popular and successful book, The Master and His Emissary, is one of the most fascinating and profound books about how the brain works. So I'm going to catch up with Ian to find out how does the brain work and what is the truth about how the hemispheres operate and what does it mean for how we see the world? Because actually, once you understand this, it has really, really profound implications. And also in this episode, I've got a little cameo appearance from none other than Orlando himself to talk about what inspires him about Ian's work and how we can apply it to advertising. You're going to love this. It is one of the most thought-provoking and challenging conversations I've ever had. Ian, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. It's, it's a pleasure. And I, have to, I listened to the book, actually, which uh, for, for anyone watching and listening, you can listen as well as read to it. And it's absolutely fascinating. I don't think I've ever listened or read, read a book where the introduction itself is two hours. And it's, it's the most fascinating introduction. But maybe maybe to go back to this beginning, how did you, well, how did you get into the career you've had? Uh, why write these books and what inspired you in the first place? Well, I started off really with an interest in philosophy as my basic interest. And I went up to Oxford to study philosophy and theology, but ended up reading English literature. Um, And I thought there was something wrong with the way we approached literature in that we made an object that should really be entirely implicit, embodied, and unique into something that was explicit, disembodied, and general. And we'd somehow lost the point of the work of art in the process of analyzing it. And that got me to think that the really crucial thing is the mind-body relationship. I went to all the philosophy seminars on the mind-body relationship and just found them all too disembodied. And I thought, I've got to do this in a more embodied way. And around that time, Oliver Sacks had just written Awakenings. And I was electrified by this, because there was this doctor who was able to bring to life individual cases of patients but very much from those individual cases to see through them some important general principles about the relationship between mind and body. I thought this is fascinating and I want to be somebody like Oliver Sacks. So I went to medical school, um, I uh, did some neurology, I then went to the Maudsley, studied psychiatry, and one day I heard somebody talking about the right hemisphere. It was a colleague of mine, John Cutting. And in medical school, we'd heard nothing about the right hemisphere. Everything happened in the left hemisphere, probably. And it was almost as though the right hemisphere was just there to prop up the left hemisphere and stop it falling over. You know, it didn't really do anything. Um, But he was saying, no, it does remarkable things. In fact, it's much more important to a human life than the left. And that got me thinking. I talked to him. I did some research with him on hemisphere differences. I went to Johns Hopkins uh, important uh, hospital and uh, science research center in in Baltimore, and researched on asymmetries in the brain, um, and then came back to to London, and carried on researching for about thirty years. And what was really fascinating was the the first moment at which I realised this was something I had to do, which was in John Cutting's lecture. He said three things that 
I mean, he didn't know were going to really set off fireworks in my brain. Um, they were the, the right hemisphere alone seems to understand the implicit. So things like humor, metaphor, poetry, myth, um, sarcasm, all these things are understood by the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere takes everything terribly seriously and deadpan as though it were a computer. And the right hemisphere is much more in touch with our embodied being, our emotions, our physical self. And when you actually read a poem or, or listen to a piece of music or whatever it is, your body is reacting all the time. Your blood pressure is changing, the pulse is changing, your breathing is changing, the tension in your in your muscles is changing. You you are an embodied being, you're not a brain in a vat. And the third thing was this uh, important idea that the right hemisphere understands the unique case, whereas the left hemisphere is simply eviscerating everything, taking it out and going, I see it's one of those, I'll put it in that box. And so we end up in a world, I believe now, where this is the normal way of doing things. We've lost the sense of humor, of poetry, of fables, of narratives, of rituals. Instead, we think of everything in this incredibly simplified and basically impoverished way. And we no longer see the unique case. We've always got to be a member of a class or a group or a race or a sex or whatever it is. And that's all that really matters. And you tick boxes. And, you know, the world, unfortunately, is not properly reflected by a number of boxes. And, and uh, you know, again, we're, we're, we're talking in a very disembodied way. Something I feel very strongly is a lot of writing, talking and thinking these days is so far from uh, embeddedness in nature including the natural world, but also in our nature, our, uh, the things that come from our bodies, like our, our sense of, of love and, and honour and, you know, all these good things, not there. Oh, now, I can't wait to get into unpacking a bit more about how the hemispheres work and so on. But let's just um, maybe address one of the questions I suppose you must get a lot, which is the popular myth of left and right brain doing different things. It's something that we get asked quite a lot at, at System One, is surely that's you know been debunked many, many years ago. Um, can you explain a bit of the history to how that became a popular myth and the difference between what you're doing and, and, and the reference to the old myth? Yes. Well, um in the 60s and 70s, there were a number of operations carried out in California originally at Caltech called callosotomy, which is popularly known as the split brain operation. And this was because people, some people had intractable epilepsy, which can't be treated with drugs, and they're basically having seizures all the time. So their life is effectively not a life. And what this operation was able to do was to stop the seizure that begins in one hemisphere spreading to the other. And as long as the people had one hemisphere, at least that was in full consciousness, this meant that they weren't so disabled by these seizures. Now, this gave psychologists an opportunity to have a window into one hemisphere at a time. And so many ingenious experiments were set up in which they tried to find out what the basic differences between these two hemispheres are. I mean, it's been known since the ancient world and was finally confirmed in the 19th century that if you have a stroke in the left frontal region, you will almost certainly lose speech, whereas if you have a stroke in the right frontal region, you don't. So there's no question that they, as it were, operate differently. They're also asymmetrical and they're fundamentally divided. Why would that be if they were just doing the same job? They're not. So... On the basis of what we learned from these operations, a number of conclusions were jumped to. 
And these were that the left hemisphere was maybe a little bit dull, but at least reliable and logical and linguistic. Whereas the right hemisphere, what was it doing? Sort of being rather emotional and painting pictures. <laughs> and this, um, this is an extremely fallacious view. And it was soon found that actually both hemispheres are involved in everything that we do. And so the subject was simply dropped. But as I say, since a billion of years of evolution have meant that all the neural networks we look at are asymmetrical, have this division, um, potentially, and then actually, as we come forward through birds and reptiles and so on to ourselves, um, this, you know, what is all this about? It's got to be about something. And after I had discovered um, this different take that John Cutting uh, put me on to, I began to look more subtly at what happens. And in a nutshell, the left hemisphere helps us to grab things, to manipulate them, but not really to understand what it is we're grabbing or manipulating. The right hemisphere is not dedicated to that. It's enough to have one hemisphere dealing with that. The right hemisphere is basically the one with which we understand things. It has profundity. It has depth, in fact. Literally depth in space is impaired when the right hemisphere is, is not working. Literally depth in time is impaired when the right hemisphere is not working. And literally depth in emotion disappears. So you get people who are living almost like in a virtual slice of the world and have no understanding for what other human beings are thinking, what they're saying. And this is why actually it's much easier to rehabilitate somebody who's got a, a dysfunctional right arm, pretty important, and lost speech, than it is to rehabilitate somebody with a right hemisphere stroke because they basically can't understand the world anymore. So uh, in, in the end, I found that the right hemisphere is actually more intelligent than the left, not only more intelligent emotionally and socially, but more intelligent cognitively in terms of old-fashioned IQ. And there's evidence, scientific evidence that this is clearly the case. And also it attends better, it perceives more, it makes more reliable judgments than the left hemisphere, not less reliable, more reliable. In fact, the left hemisphere on its own is frankly deluded. And what this is to do with is that for good evolutionary reasons, the two hemispheres pay attention to the world in two quite different ways. And I have to admit that when I first heard this, the full import of this did not dawn on me. I thought, well, attention, it's interesting, it's another cognitive function. But no, it's not. It's how our world comes into being for us. What we attend to, but much more how we attend to it, changes what we find in the world. And I therefore say that attention is a moral act because it changes the world and it changes us who are doing the attending. So if you have a very clinically detached, atomistic attention to a detail, you don't really understand what you're looking at. You become alienated from it. You become a different kind of person from the way in which you would understand the world if you had a deeper sense of its meaning and significance. And so effectively, what you have is, according to the left hemisphere, a world of little bits that are targeted. I know, I need it. It's a rabbit. It's a seed. I've got to pick it up quickly. I've got to get it. And that really is effectively the task of the left hemisphere, to get stuff, power, utility. That's what it's for. Now, it was pointed out in the 18th century by a philosopher Lessing, what is the use of use? If utility doesn't have some further need or, or, or aim or goal, 
It is futility. Use for what? Well, use for more use. No, there's got to be use for something. You've got to have other values. And it's the right hemisphere that brings into being those values, values such as beauty, goodness, and truth, effectively. But, you know, these, these are values that we've lost sight of in our world. I mean, during my lifetime, I've seen truth travested. I've seen beauty neglected by artists and architects. And I've seen, and by all of us, actually, uh, the, the phrase that artists like now is, a work is powerful. But power is the only thing on which we judge anything now. Power is what everybody must have. But sometimes, actually, the relinquishing of power, the allowing of things to happen, a certain degree of modesty, a certain degree of wonder at the world is actually wiser and, and more productive than thinking, I know it all and I'm going to control it all. It's interesting you talked about you know what you've seen in your lifetime. So can you, can you describe changes in society through looking at how hemisphere might be more or less engaged i mean is it fair to say that can you sort of look at you know patterns in culture or, or in art or in how industrial revolutions and can you see the imprint of hemisphere change i believe i believe you can in short yes um when i was in baltimore neuroimaging i got a a message from john cutting saying you must read this book and this book was a very good book that I do recommend to your viewers and listeners called Madness and Modernism by Louis Sass, who's a very widely educated psychologist. And what he was basically pointing to was that in modernism, i.e. since about 1900, our ways of thinking, our ways of doing art, our ways of relating to the world are much more similar to the ways that people with schizophrenia see the world than you would have ever expected before. And I, I, I found it utterly compelling. There are about 25 or 30 ways in which he points to <clears throat> what I'd really intuitively understood but never really thought about, that we're moving into a world, a more schizophrenic world. Now, schizophrenia doesn't mean split brain. <laughs> That's not what it means. Um, I mean, it does literally mean that in Greek, but the, the people with schizophrenia don't have that. What they do have is an over-reliance on their left hemisphere and inability basically to understand what the normal right hemisphere would be telling you. So it's not that they become, they lose their reason. As G.K. Chesterton pointed out, a man who is mad has lost everything but his reason. In other words, has to work everything out from first principles logically, as though they were an alien or a or computer. And this actually leads to all kinds of delusional uh, understandings, you know, that this voice that's actually obviously in your head. It, it, there's nobody in the room, so it must be coming through the wall from, or it's being beamed into me by a radio station or whatever it is. So I then started thinking about other eras in which there might be a more balanced vision, one into which both the right and left, as they do when they're working well, contribute. But always with the left hemisphere, which knows less and understands less, being, if you like, the, the, the minister, the emissary of the right. And in the second half of The Master and His Emissary, I do actually dare to review Western history from the Greeks through to modernism and show that probably in brief, three times in our history with various interesting swings of the pendulum, but very, very roughly over three periods, we've seen a civilization begin with both hemispheres working beautifully in harmony. And then over time, the left hemisphere always coming to predominate. And this causes the collapse of the empire. And I believe that we're in that phase now. 
So much as there was a great phase in 6th century BC in Athens and another around the year dot in Rome, followed by the collapse of those civilizations, I believe there was a great efflorescence of everything, of science, of culture, of, of drama, of poetry, of cosmology, of philosophy at the Renaissance and music, of course. And that over time, that has closed down to a much more rigid, um, almost computer-like understanding of who we are, what we're doing here, and you know what a, what a society is, what what we should be doing. And what so when when you see a, or observe a society moving from right hemisphere to left hemisphere dominance, what typically plays out um, in terms of that society? And and I guess linked to that question is, do you think that's what we're seeing today happening in society at the moment? Yes, I do. I mean, what happens is, first of all, you lose the big picture and you start concentrating and focusing on small parts of it, which is the way the left hemisphere understands. It moves from one flock to another of things that it already knows. It's not interested in anything new. It's, ah, it's one of those. I get it. I've got it. And it's grabbing it. So that's the first thing that happens. And gradually things like skill and wisdom, which are embodied and come from experience, get downclassed by comparison with a set of rules or principles. Everything has to be done by rules. Historically, this is because when a society overreaches itself, it needs a huge administration. And administration can't be dealing with the unique case. It simply, quote, rolls out a whole way of thinking, which is simple-minded and basically ignores all the life which comes from diversity and individuality, uh, and our embeddedness in, in things that are not taken into account by an administration, like the beauty of wild nature or the, the beauty of art and so on. But also what happens is that you get black and white thinking. The left hemisphere is it jumps to conclusions much more than the right. Ramachandran, V.S. Ramachandran, a famous neuroscientist, says the right hemisphere is the devil's advocate. So the left hemisphere is busy jumping to conclusions and it, it hasn't got time for nuance. So what do you mean? Well, it depends on the context and sometimes it's a bit like this, but sometimes it's like that. It goes, come on, I want either this or that. Um, everything has to be compartmentalized. There isn't any room for the quality of an individual. In fact, quantity comes to triumph over quality. A certain kind of paranoia comes about, which is the left hemisphere's mode of operation because it needs control. It wants control. If it thinks that anything is not under its control, it has to move to control it. And this is manifest again in schizophrenia. One of the famous things about schizophrenics is they are paranoid. And paranoia is, I'm not in control of things. Um, somebody else is controlling me. Um, and in fact, what they're pointing to is their unconscious mind, which is talking to them, but they're thinking, this is alien to me. I think we're now rather like that. I think we're, we live in a world which is schematically simple, ridiculously impoverished from a philosophical and emotional point of view, as well as a moral point of view, has completely put out of the picture any spiritual value. And I, I mean, that may or may not interest your viewers or listeners, but I happen to think it's the biggest loss of all. And that, in fact, it won't do us any good to push technology further if we don't have some sense of what we're doing with that and where we're heading, some wisdom. 
So we, we end up in a world where, in fact, innovation, although we're always striving for it, becomes less common because creativity depends partly on letting go. One of the most important pieces of advice to anyone who wants to be creative is stop doing whatever it is you think is going to make you creative. <laughs> That's very good. Let go. Yeah. Give some space for something to happen. Because if you're crowding it all out with your conscious mind, your thinking, your talking, still all that, get rid of it. Instead, practice an openness to what is. And this is how things will come to you. They'll come to you in what psychologists call an aha moment. <laughs> very original. Um, and an aha moment is that moment when, as it were, a picture comes into focus. So we think we arrive at a conclusion by following logical steps. Almost never has that happened. Um, in science, it's, it's well known that there is this scientific method, but it's also well accepted that almost no great uh, um, findings were ever made by the scientific method. And more often than not, what happened was that a lot of spade work was done, which I call preparation, and then there's incubation, and then suddenly there is this flowering that comes unbidden and it preparing the ground and then standing back and letting it happen. It's like being a gardener. A gardener can't make a plant, but a gardener can allow the plant to thrive or stifle it. And if there's too much going on around it, then the, the plant won't thrive. So it needs space. And if you prepare the ground well, leave it alone. Don't keep digging it up to see how it's getting on. It won't improve the progress of the plant. Leave it. And then just have trust that something will come. And for a long time, it may not, but don't despair, it will. This does explain why the brainstorm rarely works, doesn't it? Because, you know, you've got 60 minutes to come up with a unique idea, you know. But, but you're so right. I, I'd never thought about it before, but that makes sense of how the best ideas I've ever come up with have happened. It it hasn't been in a following a process. Suddenly, a number of different things will all connect together and suddenly form. But it might it might be quick. It might be slow. It might be involving other people. It might be doing something completely unrelated. You know, it, it, it's hard, isn't it? So how, how are the biggest discoveries made is, you know... <laughs> <laughs> small well, question, of course. It's a small question. I mean, one of the things you said there was right on the money, I think, which is bringing together a lot of different things. So it's often to do with not drilling down, as we now say, in a certain place. It's also like that's a bit like the man who was found looking for his keys under the light because that's where the light was, but it wasn't where the keys were. Yeah. Um, so you really need to let go. Um, and there are a number of famous examples, but one I like particularly of, is that of Poincaré. He was trying to um, demonstrate something he knew intuitively about something in mathematics called Fuchsian equations. And he stayed up all night and he drank coffee and he wrote for two weeks and he was nowhere near error. And so he gave up and he went into the local town and did some shopping and then as he was coming back, he remembers at the moment he put his foot on the bus, suddenly it all came to him. And so it's in these moments when we're not looking for it that it comes. And poets and other artists have commonly described this, that you put in some groundwork, but you know it's not going to happen then. You need that time. And that's why people who are desperate to increase efficiency are going to make things very inefficacious because... Mm, yeah. um, you can't do that thing. You've had three months. Where is the proof of what you're doing? You have to take good people and trust them. It's true that occasionally you won't be rewarded. But if you carry on screwing them down every three months, 
you will never get anything good. So you've got confirmed mediocrity. Nothing good will come out of that. So yes, in life, you have to take risks. But if you take these risks, an amazing number of people will actually come up with the goods. And in the 1960s, I think it was the Rand Corporation used to give people, you know, a check and an office and a pencil and paper and said, get on with it. And a, a lot of important discoveries came out of there. And one way of looking at the history of the last hundred years is that between, say, 1910 and 1960 or 70, there were a lot of really revolutionary discoveries in science. But since then, what we've tended to do is elaborate on things from a technological point of view without necessarily breaking very new ground. That is so, so interesting. I was going to ask you, if uh, taking all the work you've done, what do you think, if understood would be the most profound impact on our world because you've already touched in just the conversation now on the role of creativity and how societies change over time what do you think would be the one thing that if we could really understand would, would change the world i think it's probably attention and that may sound rather rather disappointing attention i don't know about that but actually how you attend to the world changes everything and so if we could do that pay attention to our attention how are we attending let me try attending in a different way you will find things coming about that will open doors for you you will see things you didn't know. so a lot of a lot of what is important is not doing and not saying this is a truth that is very well known in the oriental traditions of wisdom that as it were when you're naive and and don't really know a lot you think you it's all about what you do and what you say and then you come to a position where finally you get enough wisdom to realize that actually it's letting go of those things and so having having a very light hand on the tiller, not controlling too much where it goes, is much more predictive of some sort of success than holding the tiller very sternly in the course you want to take. It's a bit like that Dunning-Kruger effect that some people talk about, isn't Absolutely. it? It's like, you know, people that think they know everything know the least, and, and then the more you know, actually, the, le- the more you realise you don't know. The more know, you don't know. Which is so true. William James, one of my absolute heroes, a 19th century psychologist and philosopher, said, our ignorance is a is a sea our knowledge is a, a drop and i think we're still in that position in yeah. fact the more we see them the less we realize we really th- fully understand yeah now you touched on it a bit early but i'd love just to unpack a little bit what kind of left and right brain hemispheres do differently because i think you describe it, it's not that they do different things that they you know they're all into interlink but they do things differently how do they do things differently i think you if you want a very simple single point it's that the left hemisphere produces a representation of reality, whereas the right hemisphere actually puts us in touch with the presence of reality. We're so used to representation that we can't see how very different it is. Almost everything we live in now is a representation, a projection on a screen in two dimensions, um, living in a city which represents certain things, but nature is absent from it. So it's like the difference between a diagram, a theory, a map, and the actual territory of the real world, or the terrain, as I prefer to say, in which we live. And the map is very much simpler than the terrain. And that's not a criticism, because we need simplicity for a map to work. If it had too much information in it, it wouldn't work. But it's vital not to mistake the map for the real world. And and the differences in quality of these experiences are one in which 
the left hemisphere sees single atomistic bits of information that have to be put together by it to make any sense. These bits are disembodied, general in nature, taken out of context, explicit and inanimate, literally inanimate. In the right hemisphere, one sees things that are connected, they're always in relation. When we meet them, it is an encounter that changes us as well as it. All of this world flows, is never static, so you can grab it quickly. It sees it's all moving. It's also implicit, so that all the really important stuff comes to us through things that are very hard to put into words. And this world is animate. And and you can literally do this with TMS, a, 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 a process called transcranial magnetic stimulation, in which painlessly you can suppress or enhance the activity of one hemisphere at a time. If you suppress the right hemisphere, people see things that they'd normally see as animate, other people as like zombies or machines or robots, really. When you, when you suppress the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere is active, it will see the sun as a living being. So... Animacy is a very important point. And as we move more and more to a zombie-like vision of what humans are and thinking that somehow AI will, will be a richer version of what we are instead of a very, very simple and impoverished version of what we are, I think we're moving towards something foolish and dangerous. Now you talked about attention being the most profound aspect. Is, is attention driven by what we choose to give attention to or is attention created by the world? So are we becoming more attentive to our left hemisphere because the world around us is changing or is it, or do we shape it? I mean, it's both, which way it? around does it work? Or, it's or is both. It both? Yeah. I mean, since the Industrial Revolution, we have externalised into the world of experience much of the structures of the left hemisphere, mechanical things that are the same because they're produced on a production line and they work in ways we can interfere in and so on. And so we've externalized a world, a, a cityscape like a grid, often with hard surfaces, which which we're repelled by. And this confirms to us that the world has this man-made structure, which is very simple and not resonant. Whereas until, I don't know, at most a couple of hundred years ago, almost everyone on the world lived in contact with nature in all its complexity, in its responsiveness to us and our responsiveness to it. So we are responsive to the world and the world is responsive to us. And the attention that we take is firms up in a certain way. If you pay a certain kind of attention, this is important, what you see, say you, 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 you imagine that things are mechanical, you will see all the things about them that confirm that they are machines, but all the rest will retreat, you won't see it. So now you think, well, that worked very well, so everything is a machine. And at that point, it's very difficult to break out of it unless you force yourself to think, but maybe it's not. Let's try a different metaphor. And if you do, you find that other things emerge and then you get a completely different vision of the world. So you are changing it, and it is changing you, and we change one another. If I pay a certain clinically detached, cynical attention to you, you will feel yourself different. You will feel yourself diminished. But if I am a great friend of yours, and I, I smile at you, and I'm welcoming to you, you will feel yourself expand and yeah. feel different. Yeah, so it true. changes everything. With that in mind, and you know, you painted sort of a, a, a bit of a bleak picture of AI. Of course, can we? train ourselves or encourage how do we stimulate ourselves to be to, to use more of the right brain which is more intellectually powerful and so on well i think the first thing is to stop striving too much for what we think we know but but there are certain practical things i think one can do um this all gets comes down to earth with a big bump but i think things like 
mindfulness are in fact very important. Not if they're done in order to make you a better stockbroker, but <laughs> if they're done with the genuine intention to actually increase your awareness of things for whatever purposes. I think that listening to music, reading poetry, going for walks in nature, um, spending more time with your friends in a non-instrumental way, but just because you're fond of them. These are the ways to re-engage with the world that is our, our gift and our destiny. Whereas if we create a world in which everything is of use to us, everything is just for the power we can get from it, we will end very frustrated, very um, emptied out shells of a being rather than you know, not having lived before we die. So I think it is really, really important. I think we need to alter education to bring the humanities back into it. I mean, the humanities is an important word. Um, STEM subjects may be important, but they're not an education. They're a training in technique. So we need that, of course. I understand that for the economy. But until perhaps the 60s or 70s, nobody would have left school without having some acquaintance with history, philosophy, literature, and music, probably. Whereas now I think it's possible, so specialised has it become, um, that it's really just a matter of shoveling information into people and hoping that somehow a certificate will come out the other end and that will, that will be their path to, to a job. Whereas really what we should be doing is drawing out the humanity in people so that they can see further than the immediate goal and see, yes, this is good, but good for what? And really, what am I doing here? After a certain point in life, you may think, well, I've made a lot of money now. Do I really want to just make more of it? Or what am I actually going to do with this money? Can I do some good with it? Yeah. And it, it, it might explain why we've got such a mental health crisis as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, 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 if, if we're becoming more, you know, dominant on the on the left hemisphere, then we're losing those connections, the betweenness, the connection with nature that you talked about, all those things. It, it's very true. I mean, there's a massive evidence that three things that intuitive, well, one might imagine, were very important to our human well-being. One is belonging to a community with others who share our beliefs with whom we can share a meal, with whom we can worship, um, and with whom we can whom we can trust. The second is our relationship with the natural world. And the third is a relationship with whatever it is that lies beyond, call it the spiritual life, the divine or whatever. There is a colossal evidence that this is more important to our mental health and our physical health than anything else. So people who espouse these things will live fitter, healthier, better lives physically and mentally. And I mean just having a connection with the spiritual world, really believing it and practicing it, um, has a comparable effect on physical well-being as losing a lot of weight and going to the gym several times a week and giving up smoking. So, you know, there's, there's a very great body of work. It's all there in the matter of things. I, I think it would be wrong for people to espouse these on a purely utilitarian basis. But nonetheless, if you can get to see that they are important, that in itself may make you recalibrate what you want from life. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Now, we're going to bring Orlando in in just a second, but maybe maybe just one question before we bring Orlando in. And our friend, I say in quotes, AI, I, uh, I, asked, for, I asked for a question to uh, put to you that no one has ever asked before. So we'll, we'll, we'll test this out. Um, but it said, if you could collaborate with any historical figure, living or dead, on a research project related to the divided brain, who would it be and what would you explore together? There, there are quite a few people, I think. Um, but probably it would be William James, who I've mentioned already. To most people, less well known than his brother, Henry James, the novelist. But in my 
humble view, a much greater mind, <laughs> which is not to diminish Henry James, it's just to show you how extraordinarily important William James was. Um, what he was able to do was to explore in psychology many of the really important things that I have also been exploring in my work, answers really to what sort of a cosmos we live in. Um, spiritual values, he wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, which I read when I was 16, and gives great insight into what happens when people have these experiences. Um, and I think I would want to he and I, I think, would be philosophically very much eye to eye. But I think we would work on precisely the value of seeing the world in a very different way from the way we now see it, which is leading to massive unhappiness, depression, mental illness of various kinds, a sense of emptiness in which people are craving something that will give meaning to their life. And I think we could bring together a great deal of, I hope, useful um, information, well, information's not really the point, uh, knowledge and understanding of of how we are to, how we might better lead our lives. Mm, fantastic. Well, that'll be a fascinating conversation. Right, we're going to switch it. over to bring Orlando in, I think. Very good. Okay, so we're joined now by Orlando. And, uh, well, the first question really is, how, how did you two make the connection in the first place? Well, it was actually Rory Sutherland. Rory Sutherland invited you down to give a talk at Ogilvy, I think. Yes, that and would have one been of it, yes. one of one of my colleagues, so John Kieran, had been. I, I didn't go, but he came back full of you know everything you'd been saying. He said you really must look at, into this chap. So I did. I read your book. I thought it was incredible, and then I got in touch with Rory and said, you know, would would you mind putting me in touch with Ian? And uh, I, I, a lot of things were going on in my life at the time. You know, I just lost my father. Um, I read your book. Um, I've been doing some work on with the IPA on advertising and changing styles, the disappearance of characters in advertising. And um, I couldn't really explain, you know, why are these characters disappearing? What I call a fluent device, you know, repeatedly used characters. And then it all sort of came together. And, and, and I, I read your description of the left hemisphere. And, and then I, I was watching an ad break on television I thought, my goodness, everything is atomized into smaller parts, short, sharp cuts, words on the screen, you know, and also this sort of stasis and this sort of stare that you see a lot of nowadays. Nothing behind the eyes, nothing in the face, you know, no, that sort of devitalized. And it felt very mechanical. And, um, then I, you know, I looked at at how it related to emotional response in the viewer, and of course, unsurprisingly, that kind of advertising doesn't connect very well with the audience. Compared with the sort of advertising you might characterise as being more right-brained in in the way that it it is conceived and and it feels, you know, so emotion expressed through the body and face and voice, characters, um, and uh, music, perhaps humour. Uh, mm. All of those things, which it's just humor, humor. I mean, yes, I mean, which has been disappearing in advertising, but Dis um, disappearing from our from world. from the world. It's indeed. too dangerous. Yes, now, apparently. that's right. <laughs> well, it's the, it's interesting. You know, you talk about the right hemisphere being the hemisphere that helps you to see the difference between a joke and a lie. Absolutely. Um, yeah. um, you know, and actually metaphor as well that it, it understands very importantly metaphor and narrative, the, the movement exactly. through time. 
So anyway, those are the sorts of things that have been disappearing. I then went on to show in Lemon uh, from advertising, indeed from the world. So, Well, I mean, I remember when you and I first met, I think it was about the same time that you, you discovered Ian's book and how you know excited you were. It's almost like, I found the answer. This is it. This is it. But, the, um, but then there's the, 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 I always call it the chart that you came up with. But you, know, um, you, you actually looked at the left and right brain features, as it were, you might see in advertising. And that you actually measured their emotional response, didn't you? Looking at years and years of advertising and also they're linked to it you know you talked about attention being important and how that the right hemisphere features are those things that naturally grab our attention mm. as well so you know you- well that's right i mean i looked, so i looked at a lot, a lot of ad- advertising and uh, found that there were features that involve people and the living and animals interestingly enough you know um and movement and something unusual emerging from the scene these are the sorts of things that people uh, naturally are engaged by and, you know, will continue watching. You know, there's something going on here, as you put it, you know, slightly off stage, you know, slightly, you yes, know, sort yes. of slightly, um, which is, is very, you know, it's very interesting. And, and yeah. the, the other sorts of mechanistic advertising, you know, mm. people look away from. They don't, mm. It's not, not nice mm. to be stared at, you know. Well, Ian, you were talking, weren't you, about mm. different periods in history that yeah. have changed. Mm. Do, do you see that reflected in kind of culture as well? So, mm. you know, in, in art and how art is expressed as well? Because I think you kind of draw that con- oh, connection. Nice book, don't you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes, I do towards the end of The Master and His Emissary, yeah. And I think attention is our life, actually, and to have it constantly fragmented and grabbed is a displeasing feeling. Whereas you willingly give your attention to something that approaches you in a in a more humorous, more rounded way, and engage, it's not got designs on you, but mm. it actually, or it does actually, yes, but it doesn't. But, but, it's implicit. Yes, exactly. It's much more powerful. Exactly, exactly. And funny enough, you know, if you look back at advertising over the last hundred, hundred and fifty years, I've been doing recently. You do see these two schools of advertising, one that's very direct, that focuses on the product and the claim, um, that works, that can only really work through repetition, <laughs> um, and that's very narrowly targeted at people who you know, are already in some way half predisposed to this thing. Mm. But then there's this other kind of advertising, which is broader in its, in its appeal and its popular appeal that understands human motivation, that's human-centric, that works through narrative, uh, metaphor, creating atmosphere, that also um, has might have characters or, you know, people in it. Um, and that, that, that puts, you know, that, that keeps the brand before the public. It lodges yes. the brand in memory. Yes. It charms through an emotional appeal. Yes. And it doesn't insult the intelligence of the viewer either because no. it makes them fill in the gaps, you know, yes. to join the dots between yes. things. Yeah. And those two schools, to me, look and feel quite similar to the two hemispheres that you describe. I think you're right. I mean, I've read, as you know, your work in which you... You do very generously explain that what you're <laughs> working with is, is is my hemisphere theory, and I I find it absolutely resonates. And you know, if I'm right, then it should apply to everything because mm. we bring these two hemispheres mm. to everything we do. Mm. So I'm delighted that not only are there philosophers and psychiatrists and doctors and judges, but there are also advertising people and people in all walks of life who see irrelevance in well, what it, I'm saying. I mean, thank you, Ian. I mean, it, you know, it, it really is 
it's revelatory, so it's wonderful. Uh, I, I, I want to just put in a strong word for humour, I think. Oh, the ones yes. that I really remember in my life are, you know, <laughs> what are you thinking about? <laughs> right, right, yes. And, and uh, I don't know what it was, was it for frozen fish fingers or something? There's this aunt or grandmother who's got her granddaughter staying with her and she's, and the daughter says, does it have so-and-so in it? Yes. My body is a temple. And she oh, says, yes. nonsense, dear, you look lovely. <laughs> <laughs> um, and these yeah. things sort of remain with you. And you almost, they do. You, you, you almost want to, to get yes. the product. Yes, yes. they yeah. do. They well, do. If, if you, if you, you know, occasionally you have those programmes on Channel 4, Channel 5, which is the greatest ads of all time. Oh, right. And the ones that people nominate today will be 30, 40 years old. They're, they'll be the Tango ad, the R. White Secret Lemonade Drinker, or the Hamlet cigar. Do you remember the Hamlet cigar? Oh, of you know, Who I could mean, forget? exactly. You know, so so humour lodges in our memory and yes, you know it makes yes. us feel. G.K. Chesterton, another G.K. Chesterton quote. He said that you know um, humour finds its way under the door while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle. And yeah, that's very uh, good. And it's absolutely yes. right. That's a brilliant quote, isn't yes. it? He was full of them. <laughs> so, Orlando, maybe, maybe the same questions you asked Ian. But what, what would be the most profound element of Ian's work oh, that you think? Oh, that I don't think I you can't. I don't think I can. Reduce I'll just it drop in one, drop in the big question. Of course, thing. yes. Uh, I mean, all all of it. I just I've just found. Uh, well, I mean, life changing, literally life changing, um, and I think it's the. I think it's the when you look at art over, you know various periods as I often do um, and when you look at what advertising looks like for me it's just this the importance of it, Ian's given a voice to the unspeaking hemisphere in a sense and the right hemisphere which finds it difficult to articulate in perhaps in words the bigger picture the bigger truth if you like that's better connected you know to emotion that that communicates and understands emotion through the face body and voice better and just has a a, a broader perspective on things and that you know if we, if we only rely on the left hemisphere you know we'll we'll sort of get straight to the heart of the periphery if you mm. see what i mean we won't get we won't we won't we won't we won't see the bigger picture yeah no, um no. and that and that that I think we know it's very important. Yeah, as well yeah. as it goes beyond adver- obviously advertising. Goes to culture. It goes to the sort of world we want to live in. Yeah, it does. No, I, I like your broad beam versus narrow beam well, kind yes. of phrasing, I which, is, which is which yeah, is a very, a very easy way to get get head round, isn't it? And and what we've been able to prove as well, coming back to, I mean, obviously the lots of philosophical impacts of this, but we've also seen that it actually is more effective, yes. and people are more likely to respond to what you want to say yeah. if you engage them in a kind yes. of right brain kind of way, which is yes, so right. has benefits. Their intelligence, <laughs> yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, it's not. Uh, talking down. I mean, everything no. now is talking down. Everything official treats us as eight-year-olds, mm. but you know, oh, they won't get it if it's more subtle. Mm. Well, actually, they will, and they're longing. And they'll get it better yes. if it's more subtle. I, I don't know if there's time for me to make this point, but I think it's an important one. People may say, "Yeah, but you know, we never just use our left brain or right brain." It's true, literally speaking, we're using both of them all the time. But the way of looking at the world can become hardened up. And that's why the attention is so important. It's not that both parts of the brain are not working. Of course they are all the time for both of us. But it's the outlook on the world that changes. And, you know, I sometimes say it's like a 
have you, you buy a, a radio set and you think it's great and you tune into two stations and after a while you only tune into one. It's not the radio set that's changed. It's just your use of it that's changed. And we need to use our brains more balancedly, more harmoniously between these two aspects. Brilliant. Well, that's, that's very well said. Perfect place to end, I think. Brilliant. Well, thank, thank you, you both. Thank you, Ian, for did you get for time to up. say what you wanted to I say. I think I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, thank you so much for joining the Uncensored CMO. It's been a real pleasure having you on. And Orlando, for your cameo role. Thank you. In at the end. Thank, thank you both. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed that. If you never want to miss an episode again, please do hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, click on subscribe there too. If you want to follow me, you can do. I'm over at John Evans on LinkedIn or find me on Twitter as well at Uncensored CMO. Thanks again for listening and watching. I'll see you next time.